Well, if you have your Bible, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, and so we are in a series on the Sermon on the Mount, so that will take us um, through Matthew chapter 7 um, over the next several weeks. It is, it is the most well-known sermon in the world. Um, it's Jesus' Jesus's longest discourse uh, in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, uh, and it's important for us to look at it as the church because it sets up for us uh, what it means uh, to be a follower of Jesus. So I recognize that we probably have, hopefully have two, two sets of ears listening here. One is, is believers in Christ. Those of you who would say, uh, yes, I believe, I, I, I've trusted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so you're listening to this message, and so you need to be listening to this message because uh, you need to hear uh, from Jesus' mouth how you are to live as a believer. And, and, and for some of you, this might be uh, like somebody dumping ice-cold water on your head and kind of waking you up to the reality of, of what the gospel calls you to. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount hopefully will do for you. The second set of ears is probably listening here are those of you who are not yet believers, or you might think you're a believer. So I thought I was a believer for a, a good chunk of my, of my life. So I know there's some of you out there uh, that, that, that are still in that camp as well. And so this is, this is an opportunity for you to kind of, uh, just like we have Jesus's, the crowds that Jesus is speaking to here, he says he's speaking to his disciples, but he, you can also kind of picture it as there are people who are kind of standing outside the circle a little bit, people who are there, who have been following Jesus, who are curious about what this man has to say uh, about this particular life that we know as Christianity. And so some of you are just, you are like that crowd, and you're kind of outside uh, looking in and listening to say, what is Christianity all about? What, is it, what does it mean to truly have your life changed by Jesus? And so you're welcome to do that. We want you to do that uh, this morning. So uh, let me read. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16 this morning in chapter 5. So let me read those verses for us. This is God's word. Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let me pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we thank you so much for um, your word, that these words are are true, that these words are, are, are living and active, um, that these words you tell us, uh, as we even just read them, 
will not come back void. So your word is about to do its work in uh, our, our hearts. And so help us to be open to that. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So about, about 50 years ago, um, the theologian, writer, author, pastor, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book called How Shall We Then Live? How Shall We Then Live? Which is simply uh, him painting a, a broad brushstroke over all of Western civilization. And so he begins with this basic idea that every person has, has a basis of presuppositions. A, a basic way one looks at life and thinks about life. So the, the grid in which someone sees, sees the world around them. And this grid that everyone has, whether you know it or not, affects everything about you. So Schaefer, starting with ancient Rome, traces some of these presuppositions all the way into the 20th century and notes the effect that they had on things like art and technology and science. So pretty much all the things that we interact with every day are affected by certain presuppositions, either held by you or held by other people. And then he concludes by asking this question from Ezekiel chapter 33, which is the title of his book. So considering the world in which we live, considering all of these factors and all of these different presuppositions and different sorts of thinking, considering that, how then should the disciple of Jesus live in the world? How should we live in the world? Because we do, we need a stable framework in which to live faithfully in a world that we can rightly call an American Babylon. And Jesus shows us how to do this in three ways in our text. One, or first, is the response to pain. And we're going di- to deal with a specific pain here. So not just all pain in general, but a specific pain. Two is the replication of a person that person being Jesus, and then three, the reason for it all. Why do we do it? Why do we, why do we, why do we respond to, to this pain in this way? Why do, we, why do we try to replicate this person, this man named Jesus? What is the reason for that? So first, the response to pain in verses 11 and 12. And we, we briefly looked at 11 and 12 last week, uh, but I wanted to look back at 11 and 12 because verses 11 and 12 connects the, the Beatitudes to, uh, to verses 13 through 16. And so all of this is, is the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So 11 and 12 connect these two, these two uh, portions of Jesus' Sermon here in his introduction. And what these verses teach us is the response that the, that the disciple of Jesus is to have. So the response that the disciple of Jesus is to have to the response of a life lived according to the gospel that will provoke from a watching world. So your response to the gospel will provoke a response from a watching world. And Jesus here says, this is how you handle that. This is how you handle the the pain that you will experience from being my disciple. Look at verses 11 and 12 again. 
Jesus says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So initially, these verses seem negative. To be hurt and ridiculed or both uh, for what you believe is not an attractive offer. This is why guys like uh, Joel Osteen, some of you know who he is, writes a, a book titled Every Day's a Friday. It's because we love Fridays, right? And if he were to be more bib- biblically accurate, which is probably impossible at this point in his life, he could have written the book Every Day's a Monday because we all hate Mondays, right? It's painful. We have a whole week ahead of us. To say that you're, you're blessed when others revile you, which means they essentially are spitting in your face. Or when you're persecuted. And so when we think about persecution, my mind immediately goes to the persecuted church right now of people who are jailed for their faith and worse, even killed for what they believe. Or have all sorts of evil spoken against you, so people running around and speaking lies about you. None of these are great selling points for Christianity. None of these are going to to really win a whole lot of people to the faith, we think. Which is why I think we need to look deeper and consider the implications of Jesus' meaning here. For starters, this this should make a a skeptic of Christianity uh, at least want to consider what Jesus has to say here. Because if Jesus were merely a man and not God incarnate, this would not be in the Bible. I mean, why would, why would anybody put this in the Bible? Why, wouldn't, wouldn't we want to make Christianity, if we want to win as many people as possible, wouldn't we want to make it as appealing as possible? Especially as the main spokesperson for Christianity. But Jesus doesn't do that here or anywhere else in the Gospels. In fact, Jesus goes a step further and does the exact opposite. He thins the crowd instead of fattening it up. He says things like, in this world you will will have troubles. They hated me and they will hate you on account of me. If you don't take up your cross, which the cross is, I know we, we use it as jewelry now, nowadays, and so we don't think of the cross as the first century uh, thinks of the cross, but the cross was a symbol of execution. It's all they use the cross for. So if you don't take up your cross, if you don't take up this symbol of suffering and death, Jesus says, you cannot, you cannot be my disciple. Well, another implication that we need to consider here is the reasoning for the persecution. That's pretty important. Why will people do this? Why will people revile you as a believer? Why will people persecute you? Why will people utter all kinds of, of, of evil things about you? Is it because they don't like you? 
Is it because your personality annoys them? Well, no, not necessarily. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. What Jesus is saying is that if you experience the kind of suffering that he is referring to here in his words, it's because of him that you do. It's because of Jesus that you are reviled. It's because of Jesus that you will suffer persecution. It's because of Jesus that you will have all sorts of things uttered against you that are not true and are evil. People do this because they don't like Jesus. And if you are not a follower of Jesus today, that is the camp in which you find yourself. There's no middle ground to that. You can't say, hey, Jesus was a good man. Uh, Jesus, you know, he did, he did this, that, and the other. You know, he was, he was just as good as any other good man or woman was that walked upon the earth. Jesus doesn't give you that option. Jesus says he's either Lord of your life or he's not. Well, Jesus explains uh, this idea about suffering to his disciples a little, bit, a little bit more in detail here in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 21. And this is Jesus again talking to his disciples. He says to them, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you were not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that, that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. So what this means is that if you suffer for things other than the gospel, if you suffer for things other than for Jesus, so an example, foolish social media post, just to stir up the pot, you know who you are. That's on you. Don't start crying persecution because someone doesn't like the, what, what you say about their political opponents or your conservative worldview. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. As believers, we don't engage in conflict that will enable people to accuse us genuinely. And what that means is we don't go out of our way to be controversial. We simply preach the gospel. Paul says that the gospel will be an aroma of, uh, that, that smells well to some, but that it will also be a stench to others. Because the gospel message is controversial enough. Because Jesus is controversial. I have a book on my shelf right now uh, by John Stott titled Christ the Controversialist. Because to insert the gospel, this gospel that we read about in the scriptures, to insert the gospel into the culture that we live will stir it up for you enough that you don't need to create your own drama to add to it. Listen to the words of, of Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, 
he describes this beautifully. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome, outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? So we suffer, Peter says, not for ourselves, but for the sake of Christ. And then you have verse 12. And in verse 12, Jesus gives us the emotions we are to feel in response to persecution. Maybe you're like me, that's, you're a bit more stoic with your emotions. You can ask Tara about that. And so you have a hard time knowing what to feel in certain situations. Well, Jesus is giving you help here. Jesus says, listen, if, if you are persecuted for your faith, if you are reviled for your faith, this is how you respond. Be joyful and be glad. Be joyful and be glad. Don't wallow in self-pity. Don't ask, as Peter was telling us, uh, don't be surprised when it happens to you. But have joy and gladness. A great and beautiful biblical example of this is found in Acts chapter 5. Um, when after the apostles have, they have preached the gospel boldly. This is very early on in the early church. They are preaching the gospel boldly. Thousands of people are coming to know Jesus. Thousands are being added to the local church every single day. And so, of course, they're being accosted by the religious leaders of the day because they don't like what's happening here. Because, remember, Jesus is offensive. And Jesus is particularly offensive to those who would call themselves religious. And so for preaching the gospel, some of the apostles are uh, beaten and put in prison. And so after some of the apostles had been put in prison and beaten, Acts 5.41 says, they left the presence of the council, who had just done this, rejoicing. Why? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. They were glad and joyful because they were privileged enough to be able to suffer for the name of their Savior. Because when we suffer in this way, we suffer not for ourselves and our sin. Jesus has already done that for us. We suffer now as believers for the name of Jesus. And I can say with confidence, it is worth it. It's worth it. Because I'll just let you know, you're suffering for something. 
And you're probably, if you're not suffering for Jesus, you're suffering for something that isn't worth it. You're suffering for something that will die and be gone and will no longer be in your possession. You're suffering for something that, will, uh, that is temporary, that is going to leave, that is going to burn up, that is going to rot or rust. You're suffering for something. Well, verse 12 concludes by giving us a twofold reason uh, for why we can rejoice and be glad. One is, uh, or first, it's the great reward that we have in heaven. This is, this is a worthy reason compared to the affliction that we will experience on earth. And this is what the Apostle Paul says about that in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, We do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And he says this, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal, forever. You may have heard the expression, someone may have said, said it to you, that, that someone who is uh, heavenly minded is of, of no earthly good. That person is, is too heavenly minded and they're no good on this earth. And let me just say, that is really bad theology to say that. Because according to Jesus, right here in these verses, in order to endure the suffering that you will experience as a believer, you have to be heavenly minded. You have to have your eyes fixed there. It is vital for your faith. Again, the Apostle Paul is forgetting, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying that is a goal here on earth, but that's also a goal beyond this world as well. The upward call of God in Christ. Second reason is, is, is the way of the prophets. That the, that the prophets were treated the same way before us, Jesus tells us. So no doubt the persecuted Christian is in good company here. And what the prophets demonstrated for us was nothing more than looking to Jesus in their suffering as well. They endured by looking to the one who was able to endure because of the joy set before him, is what Hebrews 12 tells us. That Jesus was able to endure the suffering and and death on our behalf because His joy was set before Him to endure the cross. And because we can respond with joy and gladness because of what Christ has accomplished, we can also replicate Jesus as well in a very small way with our lives. So and it's Jesus again who shows us what this looks like by telling us who we are in verses 13 through 15. So first, Jesus says that we are the disciple, or the disciple is the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Now, in, in the first century culture and in our, in our culture as well, salt is, is primarily used as a preservative. Uh, it's also used to flavor as well, but primarily during this time it was used to preserve 
meat and food so that they wouldn't go bad. So this is what the, the first century audience, this is where their minds would have gone to when Jesus talked about, you are the salt of the earth. This is immediately what they would have begun to imagine. And so this is the, the image that Jesus wants his listeners uh, to have in their mind. So that they understand that it is the Christian. It is the follower of Jesus, that the disciple of Jesus is the one who brings this counter-cultural reality of Christianity to whatever sphere of life they are called into. Whether that be your family, your vocation, your school, your neighborhood, into politics, into the the issues that, that are facing us as a culture. That we are to bring the, the, the salt of Christianity into those things. The New Testament scholar Jonathan Pennington, he wrote this. He says uh, on, this, uh, on this particular part of Jesus' sermon, he says, To be a disciple means to be an outward-focused agent of the kingdom, inviting people to honor and glorify God. And that's what it means to be salt in this world. Well, next, Jesus calls us, as disciples, the light of the world. Now, notice that the metaphor of salt in verse 13 and the metaphor of light in verse 14 are similar in structure. They're parallel calls here. So, in verse 13, you have Jesus saying, You are the salt of the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, You are the light of the world. So what this tells us is that you cannot be salt and not light. And you cannot be light and not salt. A disciple of Jesus is both at the same time. You are both, Jesus is saying here, salt and light. That is a disciple. So we must be those who, who, who labor to prevent uh, the spread of evil in the world. We, we labor to prevent uh, badness, we could say, spreading as salt. But then we also promote the spread of the truth of the gospel in our world. We are light. So we prevent and we also promote. And what this means is we don't go around pointing our fingers at our neighbors and telling them how bad they are or telling them that their actions are wrong. That's not what we're called to do. We're also called to be light as well. And so when we are pointing out those evils in our world and saying those things are wrong, those things are backwards to the way in which God has created the world, we provide the light of the gospel so that those who are walking in darkness can see so preventing and promoting there's a reason uh, that Paul says to the churches uh, I have committed to know nothing else among you except Christ crucified that is Paul's base that is Paul's filter that is that is that is everything that that Paul does in his life he he runs it through Christ crucified So we have to ask the question, as we live in the real world, 
Uh, and when we encounter situations and encounter darkness, because I know all of you do, in what way does the gospel speak to this particular situation? In what way can I bring the light of the gospel into this area of my life? Well, Matthew has already primed the pump for his, his readers in, in his, of his gospel for this idea of a disciple being the light. In chapter 4, verse 15, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 12, and it says this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And this is where the, re- the replication of the person of Jesus for us as disciples of Jesus really begins to become clear. Because just as Jesus is the great light come to bring salvation to, to the nations, to the Gentiles, so too through identifying with him, a disciple is now described as light as well. And Jesus says we are not to hide that light. In fact, he says that we are to be as visible as a city would be that sat atop a hill. It cannot be missed. Nobody is going to question whether or not that is a city on a hill that is, that is lit up with lights. They're going to know. And the same is true for you. Shining forth the great light of Jesus. So if you're truly living for the reason that Jesus gives us in our final point, then this light that you have been given in Christ will burn bright and will never be extinguished. Because being salt and being light have the same end game. Being salt and being light have the same uh, reason. And it's this, so so that others may see your good works and then do what? Say how amazing you are. Say how nice and kind you are to other people. And that's not it at all. That others may see your good works and then give glory to the Father who is in heaven. That's the goal. The goal is to, is to live in such a way by the power of the Holy Spirit, not on your own, to live in such a way that your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members, those people that you interact with on a, on a daily basis will see your good works. They will see the salt and they will see the light and that then they will give glory to the Father who is in heaven. That their eyes would, would be cast toward heaven like our eyes are cast toward heaven. And this is an appropriate conclusion to the intro to the Sermon on the Mount because it sets, up, sets us precisely where we need to be as disciples of Jesus. It answers Francis Schaeffer's question, how should we then live? How should we then live? 
How should we then live in this ever-changing world where our leaders rise and fall daily, even within the church? Where the rules change so often that no matter what you say or do, it seems like it's wrong? Is our response to, to change our theology? Is it to change what we believe about the gospel to make it fit the culture so that, we, so that we're not persecuted? So that we're not reviled? Do we just, or, or do we just retract into our little Christian enclave and quietly point our fingers at the outside world and say, look how bad they are. Thank God we're in here. Absolutely not. Jesus doesn't give us a list of options here. He simply tells the believer in Christ to live as salt and light in this world so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That's the, that's the consistent goal no matter what is going on. And sometimes that will include persecution. Sometimes that will include mean words being spoken to you or behind your back. And may even have people spit in your face for what you believe. But what Paul says, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because fallen humanity present company included, just so you know, needs more than just roadblocks to stop doing bad things or becoming as bad as they could be. No, they need their worship redirected. Because similar to what I said earlier, we're all, we're all worshipers. If you're not worshiping the one true God, you are worshiping someone or something and you need your worship redirected. Those who stand outside looking in, they need new life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, since these verses conclude the intro to the sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, let me conclude uh, the sermon today by connecting today's text back to who Jesus says is blessed in verses 3 through 10, the Beatitudes. A blessed person, we learned last week, is someone others look at and say, I want what they have. I I wish I had that kind of life. That's what a blessed person is. And Jesus is saying here, blessed is the person to whom these Beatitudes are true. Because that person is truly experiencing the good life. Because they're experiencing it with Jesus. And that the way in which uh, you will experience the good life is is not by pursuing the ever-changing, unstable realities of our world, but it's by pursuing the fixed truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unchanging reality of God who has come to you in the flesh and says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you again for the truth of the gospel. Jesus, we are grateful that you don't leave us in this world uh, without hope, that you don't leave us in this world without instruction, that you give us your spirit, that you give us your word, so that we might live lives that others would look at and see you, and then give glory to our Father in heaven. And so God, I pray for those uh, here who have been walking with you for, for a long time, that their eyes um, would be, and, and heart and mind would be renewed again today uh, at this fresh understanding of the gospel. I pray for those friends and visitors here who have yet to come to know you, that they would see today as the day of their salvation, that they would repent and believe the gospel. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen.